So those five things, medications, overall carbohydrate intake, especially processed carbohydrates and added sugar, your movement, sleep, and stress, those five things are what's going to make up the key component of your plan. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to SolvingType2Diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. I hope you've had a really great week this week. I've had a good week. Before I get into that too much, I'd like to ask a favor of you. Would you please share this episode with someone who you think might get some value out of it like you are? I certainly would appreciate that. So this week, I really did have a simple week at home. No travel, not much going on, just a nice, relaxing, pleasant week at home. I only ate out in restaurants twice this week. Once was with my wife. We went to Schwalm's in Cleona for lunch. If you're in the central Pennsylvania area, I encourage you to check it out. I had a Salisbury steak, which is basically just like a chopped sirloin, I guess, like a hamburger. And, but it's served plain, no bun or anything like that. Also had some carrots and green beans, so I had a really good lunch. And then one time I this week I had breakfast with my brother. We had a few home errands to run. We were replacing his smoke detectors in his house. And um, before that, we stopped in at a local place in Palmyra called The Filling Station. And I think it used to be a gas station a long, long time ago. And so they called it The Filling Station. But you certainly do get full. It's very good food, lots of it, and really inexpensive, which I always appreciate. But I had some scrapple with a couple of scrambled eggs on top. And that combination, to me, is great for breakfast. I had five good trail walks this week out enjoying the Lebanon Valley Rail Trail, which is near my house, and five really nice walks, great weather, I would say mid-70s to low 80s, and really enjoyable out there. The pollen certainly is really coming out in full. I think tree pollen is really high right now, so one day I actually had to take a Benadryl when I got back. My eyes felt like they had sandpaper in them. And so that Benadryl knocked that out and also made me a little sleepy, I think. For my numbers this week, I did manage to close my rings five out of seven days, which is good. It doesn't always have to be seven out of seven. But to me, five, six, seven days out of the week is really great. I probably average, I'm going to say about 13 out of every 14 days closing my rings. So that's great. My seven day average blood glucose reading was 112. 
So a little bit higher than it has been in weeks past. Now, of course, you never know if that is the CGM reflecting just a little high or what. But that gave me a GMI on the app of 6.0. So I am eating very similarly to how I have eaten in weeks past. But the blood sugar is just up a few points. So really nothing to worry about. My body fat percentage is down again this week, and I have been trying to eat a little bit more. I want to really slow down this weight loss, but my body fat percentage is at 21.0. And I actually looked, and just a couple of years ago, my body fat percentage was at 32%. It is definitely going down. It's at 21.0. My end goal is to get it down to 17%, which my current weight, 4%, that would be about, I don't know, 7 pounds of fat still to lose to make it down to that 17%. So, slowly but surely, it seems to be working. My macros for the week, on my 7-day average, I average 69 grams of carbohydrates each day as an average for this week and I averaged 148 grams of protein so I'm getting in plenty of protein and that's easy to do when I'm eating at home I'll have some sort of chicken I had tuna a few times this week I had some beef lots of good meat and then supplementing usually about one protein shake a day because that is a quick fix for 30 grams of protein so even without that protein shake I would have been just under 120 grams of protein, so not too bad in and of itself, but I am trying to keep it up there. For my Manjaro update this week, a little bit more of the status quo. I'm still on the 7.5 milligram dose. Now, you know, I have taken the 2.5 milligram dose to start, did that for a month. Then I slid up to the 5 milligram dose for a month and now I think I'm actually on my third month of 7.5 milligrams. It's moving right along. Right now I'm doing the seven-day interval. I had tried that 10-day interval but I was getting really strong reactions when I did take a, an injection after the 10 days because I think the level got too low and therefore it went from a very low level in my body and then hit it with 7.5 milligrams and that was just a little bit too much. So at seven days though, the level in my blood evidently stays a little bit higher. It does have a half-life of five days. So I guess that means I have just under four milligrams still in my system when I take it at the seven-day level. So going from four milligrams to seven and a half milligrams with a fresh injection doesn't seem to cause me any issues whatsoever. So that's good. Still getting great benefit out of the Manjaro. It is a fantastic way to suppress appetite. And the downside is sometimes I have to make myself eat a little bit more than I really feel like eating. But again, I don't want the weight loss to be too dramatic and I don't want it to continue forever. So it's a balancing act with the Manjaro. My challenge and win for the week is hard to figure out. Honestly, I, it's another autopilot week for me, and I have mentioned that term before, and that's when everything's just clicking, everything's moving along, no issues, no big changes, no big 
issues. An autopilot week. I've had a good selection of things to eat. I got out for some very good walks. Medications are working. I can't complain about an autopilot week. So let's chalk that up as a win. Looking at the news this week, I got some really good ones here. The first article is entitled, Sugar-Sweetened Beverages Linked with Increased Risk of Premature Death for People with Type 2 Diabetes. So they did a study. All these good articles seems to start with a study. And this was just published this month. And this study tracked about 13,000 people and it reviewed health data from over 18 years from these people and what they found is that all-cause mortality in other words dying from any reason or dying early for any reason and also in particular cardiovascular disease was dramatically higher. I think they said here an 8% higher risk of all-cause mortality. Now, we are all going to die, obviously, but there's meaning a higher risk of dying earlier than average. For uh, people who consumed sugar, uh, sugary sweetened beverages and a 20% higher risk of cardiovascular disease for those people who regularly consumed sugar-sweetened beverages compared to people who did not consume beverages with sugar. Now, they could be drinking plain water, they could be drinking plain coffee, or they could be drinking beverages with non-nutritive sweeteners. Some people call those artificial sweeteners. But it's things that just simply are not sugar. So it's a very short article. They do link to the overall study, but there's a clear direct association for premature death from people with type 2 diabetes who continue to drink sugar-sweetened beverages. So that's one to check out. Another article here is called A Long Life After Prediabetes depends on these two factors. So these are for people who have had a diagnosis of pre-diabetes. So you might think that lowering your blood sugar to eliminate that diagnosis of pre-diabetes might be sufficient. But what they said here is that for people to actually have long lives, it wasn't enough to simply get the blood sugar down below pre-diabetes. If they were a current smoker or someone who did not stay physically active, it did not end up increasing their longevity. If they were a smoker or did not get regular exercise, it actually took stopping smoking and starting regular exercise to improve their life expectancy. So evidently, having prediabetes, while that's not good, that in itself, getting rid of that, is not enough to overcome the negative effects of smoking or being sedentary. If you have prediabetes, then yes, absolutely, do what you can to remove that diagnosis, right? Because we all know that's not helpful. 
having prediabetes because prediabetes is usually simply a stepping stone to full type 2 diabetes. But more importantly, it looks like if you're a smoker or if you are very sedentary, and they define sedentary of those folks who get in less than 150 minutes a week, which is a half an hour, five days a week, of light to moderate exercise. So walking, things like that. If you don't get at least that in, they call you sedentary. And obviously, if you smoke, then you're a smoker. So it's ending those two things, in addition to removing that diagnosis of prediabetes, that really helps your overall life expectancy. This next article here is a good one. Now, it does have the word radical in the title, so I don't want you to think that this is maybe for everyone, but it is interesting information. The title says, Radical Diet Can Reverse Diabetes and Keep It at Bay for at Least Five Years, according to the study. Now, what they did was they put people who had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and were obese. So these are folks that who were medically obese with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And they wanted to see what simple weight loss and calorie restriction would do with their blood sugar. So basically they went on, and again, I'm not recommending this for anyone. I'm just mentioning what they did in this study. But they went on a liquid diet, a high-protein liquid diet. They were medically supervised. They were followed frequently by a doctor, and they were under the care of a doctor to do this. It was a clinical trial, but they basically had about 850 calories a day in the form of a liquid protein drink, and they did this for 12 weeks. And for those people who removed their diagnosis of obesity and were able to keep that weight off, were free of their diabetes. So 50%, it looks like, 50% of the people who were able to remove and then keep off their obesity managed to reverse their type 2 diabetes. It shows you that obesity is a major driver of type 2 diabetes for most people. Most people who have type 2 diabetes also have obesity. If you remove that, maybe through a more sustainable, healthy way, but if you remove that, you have a good shot of reversing your type 2 diabetes, which I find very encouraging. This final article here is a basic one for us, but I thought it important. It's simply entitled, What is Insulin Resistance? So insulin resistance, simply put, is your body's cells' inability to use the hormone insulin. Now, the hormone insulin is supposed to allow you to take the sugar that's in your blood and store it in your cells. Now, you use it in your muscles, things like that. You use it for energy of living. But insulin resistance is when you don't have the ability anymore to get that insulin and have it be the key, so to speak, to open up the doorway into the cells and allow that blood sugar to flow into the cells where it can be used, and therefore it stays circulating in the blood. Now, they're saying here, what causes 
the insulin insensitivity. And here's a common one. We know this one, excess body weight and body fat. They say is the leading cause of insulin resistance. They say that if you have a waist measurement of 35 inches or more, if you're female, or 40 inches or more, if you're a male, that is a sign of your risk of either having or getting insulin resistance. So it's that extra fat, especially around the abdomen, that they say is a problem. Also, they tie to it inactive lifestyle. We just talked about that. And then finally, they mention a high carbohydrate diet. And what they're thinking is by eating a diet high in carbohydrates, that your body is trying to produce more and more insulin. So having a high level of carbohydrate and a high level of insulin is one of the things that can lead to this insulin insensitivity. Your body basically gets to the point where I guess it doesn't care that you have all this insulin flowing through your body. Your pancreas gets tired and eventually it can't produce enough insulin. That happens later on in a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So they're saying lifestyle is one of the best things you can do. Balanced eating, regular exercise, weight loss, and, you know, that's one of the things we need to always be focused on. It seems to come back over and over again in these articles when I talk about what I do, but those lifestyle changes are a major player. Also, and I'll say this, this is not part of the article, but I will say that these GLP-1 inhibitors and the GIP inhibitors like Manjaro or Ozempic really seem to help with that insulin sensitivity. So the main topic for today, and we mentioned this last week, is creating your own plan for solving type 2 diabetes. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions here. And this may or may not apply to you, but I'm going to assume that you already have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, or perhaps it's pre-diabetes, because the vast majority of the people who are diagnosed with pre-diabetes and don't make lifestyle changes or other changes often go to the full type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to assume for this topic that you already have that diagnosis. You most likely took tests. Maybe you had symptoms, maybe you didn't. The vast majority of people who get an initial diagnosis of type 2 diabetes actually don't have any symptoms that they recognize. It's subtle. It's like high blood pressure. It can be there lurking, and you might not know it unless you get tested. I'm going to assume you have those tests already. So what does that mean? That means you're Blood glucose levels are too high. They're in, a, in an area that can cause very bad long-term side effects. We all know the problems with having uncontrolled type 2 diabetes. It can lead to poor circulation. It can lead to a neuropathy. That's sort of basically a death of the nerves, especially in the extremities. You can lose extremities. You can lose your vision. You can have heart disease, kidney disease. There's a whole lot of things that come with uncontrolled long-term type 2 diabetes. So what do we need to improve? We need to improve those blood glucose levels. We need to reduce them down out of the dangerous range. And generally speaking, if you have in the U.S. blood glucose levels, an A1C of 6.4 
or higher, they generally say that is where the threshold of type 2 diabetes begins. So we need to improve that. We need to get it below that level, at least below 6.4. Although the American Diabetes Association does say your goal should be to get it below 7. You're still in the type 2 diabetes range, but they say for most people, that's about the best they can hope to do. We all know that if you try and if you have the right combination of lifestyle changes and medications and exercise, that you can actually get up down below pre-type 2 diabetes and put that in remission. So we improve what we measure. So one of the things we're going to have to do when you make your own plan is to figure out how you're going to take those measurements. Now, typically, we can measure blood glucose in the doctor's office by getting a blood draw and having an A1C level taken. And that's something if you have this diagnosis, you're going to get on a regular basis, maybe every three months, maybe every six months. We also can take it instantaneously with a finger stick. More long-term than that is wearing a continuous glucose monitor like I do, but we improve what we measure. We also need to work with professionals. Now, who are the professionals? Obviously, your primary care provider is a professional, but they do also have specialists. They have endocrinologists, people that specialize in things like diabetes. They have registered dietitians, they have nutritionists, they have exercise coaches. Some folks successfully go to a CrossFit gym where they tend to focus on both exercise and nutrition. But you can work with coaches or medical staff or registered dietitians, but work with professionals. Next I would say is to get support. Maybe you're getting some support from the things we talk about on this podcast, and I hope so. I hope that's helpful. But there's also other groups, support groups. Sometimes they're based in hospitals or medical networks, but there are various support groups out there for folks dealing with type 2 diabetes. And the following I would say, get educated. Education on your own part can go a long way to helping you deal and cope with this diagnosis. You can learn things that have worked for other people. You might want then to discuss them with your doctor, see if perhaps they can work for you. But I would say get educated. It's great to work with professionals, but I would not rely on them 100%. I would say also get educated so that you can intelligently discuss this topic with your medical professionals. So what are we looking at here? There's five things, five things that you're going to want to probably put into your plan for dealing with your own diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. The first I'm going to say is medications. If you found this through taking a test with your doctor, either an A1C test or a glucose tolerance test or a fasting blood sugar test, the thing that your doctor might first recommend in addition to lifestyle changes are medications. Most folks on type 2 diabetes start on metformin, especially if it's, I'm going to call it mild type 2 diabetes or even pre-diabetes. Metformin is usually the initial go-to. Now we all know there's more advanced medications out there. I'm on a couple of them. I take the Farsiga, which eliminates excess sugar through your kidneys, and I also take Manjaro, which makes you become more insulin sensitive. It also curbs your hunger and appetite to make weight loss and fat loss easier. 
The next thing is carbohydrate intake. So if you're working with your doctor or a dietitian, you're probably going to set up a recommended intake of carbohydrates to not exceed. Now, when I was initially working with a doctor several years ago, she had mentioned to me not to exceed 100 grams of carbohydrates. Now, I typically stay fairly well below that, maybe 60 to 80 gram range is a daily target for me. And that limit of carbohydrates is very helpful to me, very successful, because I know that if I eat something that's high carb, especially high processed carbohydrates, has added sugar, that type of thing, my blood sugar will spike. And that makes sense. You intake a lot of carbohydrates, and now your body has to work to get that out of your blood and get it stored and put away. If you're insensitive to the carbohydrates, like we talked about in that article earlier, that's going to take time. That's going to be difficult. It's going to make your pancreas really work hard. So having a carb intake limit is also something that you'll probably discuss early on with your dietitian or nutritionist. Next one's movement. And this is a good one that we all know. We all know movement is good. It helps us lower our risk of all-cause mortality. It helps with things like cardiovascular disease and whatnot. It also, hey, it burns off sugar. Your muscles burn sugar. Having movement works your muscles. It makes sense that does lower your blood sugar levels. And I show that when I track my numbers like that, it does, in fact, reduce my blood sugar levels. Now, not eating a lot of carbohydrates to begin with is the biggest mover of blood sugar, but the movement also certainly does help as well. Another thing they show in study after study is how important sleep is. We just had an article, I believe it was last week, talking about how sleep is one of the most important things you can do. Getting uninterrupted sleep, quality sleep, enough sleep. That's a big factor also that you're most likely going to want to have in your plan when you set it up to solve your own type 2 diabetes diagnosis. Finally, I want to talk about stress. Stress is one of those things that is subtle, sometimes hard to understand, but it involves hormones. When you have a high level of stress, when you say don't get enough sleep, your hormones like cortisol can be raised. And when that's raised, you're inhibiting the ability of your insulin hormone to work. So these hormones have to be in balance. They, one can't be outweighing the other and otherwise it causes the other ones not to be effective. So we all need our insulin to be as effective as we can because we do have a limited supply. We can't abuse our pancreas forever and just assume it's gonna pump out more and more insulin. But when it does produce insulin, we want it to be effective. Therefore, we want our stress reduced. Maybe you do breathing exercises. Maybe you do meditation or yoga. I call my long walks out on the trail to be very stress relieving, almost meditative. And uh, so that I think really helps me coupling with getting good sleep. So those five things, medications, overall carbohydrate intake, especially processed carbohydrates and added sugar, your movement, sleep, and stress, those five things are what's gonna make up the key component of your plan. Now. I'm not going to be able to certainly even attempt to prescribe any of those levels for your plan. That would be completely inappropriate. I do know what's worked for me, 
and maybe that will give you some ideas to discuss with your doctor or your dietitian or your sports coach about what levels you might want to set for yourself. But get educated, get support, work with the professionals, and set up your own plan and solve your diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Let's take a look at your questions. We have two questions this week, and ironically, one is from Stephen and one is from Steve. And I did make sure they were from two different people. It's not the same person writing in twice, but I believe they're both from the UK, which I find very interesting. 10% of the folks who listen are from the UK, which is cool. So the first question here is from Stephen. Stephen writes and he says, how did you get the Libre 3? I thought you had to be on insulin. Also, I just chatted with the Freestyle team and they said it wasn't available yet in the US. Am I wrong? Could be an insurance carrier thing too. And he said that his insurance denied him the Dexcom CGM. So thanks, Stephen. Thanks for writing in. Yes, I do have the Libre 3. It's currently on my right arm right now and so it is available in the US so how did I get it I simply asked my doctor to prescribe it I had been using the original Libre and when I saw that the Libre 3 came out this year it was supposed to be more accurate more effective I said hey I want to switch to the Libre 3 now I did talk to the pharmacist because one time about a month ago we had to wait I think it was like a week for a couple of more sensors to come in and I said, do many people have a hard time getting it? And she said, well, honestly, it's so new that she doesn't have a lot of folks who use that particular pharmacy using the Libre 3. So it's been out for less than a year in the U.S. But so I think it came out sometime summer of 22 here in the U.S. And I do think it is a U.K. firm, so they might have had it longer. But I think you're right here in saying that it could be an insurance carrier thing. Now, I know that up until last year, my insurance did not cover continuous glucose monitor for folks with type 2 diagnosis, only for type 1. And those folks obviously do use insulin. But it's covered now. Maybe double check with your insurance. Maybe... They denied, you said, the Dexcom brand. Maybe check with the Libre, the Abbott Freestyle Libre brand and see if they'll approve that. And if you're really wanting to get it, I, there are ways to get it without your insurance. You can use some of these telemedicine firms. And the one I used was called NutriSense. But they only had the originals. They did not have the Libre 3s yet. So good luck to you, and I hope that helps, answers your question, and let me know. The next question here is from Steve. First was from Stephen. Now this one's from Steve. And he says here, Hi, Tom. I just wanted to say I'm still listening along each week and enjoying your podcast. I started my type 2 diabetes journey in January, and I've had my first retest of my A1C. I'm very happy to have improved from 7.5 to 6.4. The info you shared has certainly helped me keep a focus on it and keep making better choices. Many thanks, Steve. Hey, thank you, Steve, and congratulations on getting your A1C down. So at 6.4, you are just right on the lower edge of the type 2 diagnosis. 
Just get it down a little bit more and you'll be in the pre-diabetes range again. Great job on that. And uh, from January to April, to have it go down from 7.5 to 6.4 is absolutely fabulous. And thank you for the kind words. I'm glad you're listening each week. And send in ideas, suggestions, questions you might have for new topics. So if you would like to write in like Steve and Stephen did, there's two basic ways to do it. The first one is real simple. Just send me an email. My email address is tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com. And send me an email. You can send in feedback on the podcast. You can send in a question, maybe suggest a new topic. And uh, I'd be happy to get back to you and include that on the podcast. The second way is to go to my website, solvingtype2diabetes.com, and click on Feedback. And there's a little form. You fill out the little form. And again, send in a question, send in a comment, suggest a topic. All those would be very welcome, and I'd be very happy to hear from you. If you remember back at the beginning of the episode, I asked you to do me a favor. So I'm just going to remind you, if you don't mind, share this with someone who you think would get value like you are. Okay, so what's next? The next two weeks, actually almost three weeks, but the next two episodes will be recorded while I'm out traveling. Next week's episode will be from Disney's Hilton Head Island Resort. Then the following week's episode will be from Disney's Vero Beach Resort. In between those two, believe it or not, we're going to hop on a quick four-night cruise with Royal Caribbeans on the Independence of the Seas. So that's going to be a whirlwind three-week trip, if you will. And so I'm going to talk again about traveling while solving type 2 diabetes. In the first and last parts of that three-week trip, we'll be able to do some cooking. We'll be eating out in some restaurants as well. But then in the middle, we'll be back on a cruise ship where all the food is, of course, prepared. So it's going to be a matter of making good choices, and we'll talk about that next. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There, you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.